All right, you guys, I'm really excited to share announcements with you, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> so I'm leaning on you, James. I'm turning around, I'm looking at it, and then I'm gonna, you're bowing for a treat, you guys, a treat. Outdoor Christmas. I know. We did some serious planning last week, and I am pumped for our outdoor Christmas. Um, we have a rain plan. It's not looking like we're going to need it, but we have one anyway. So you don't have to check social media or wonder if it's happening. It's happening no matter what. We have made a few shifts from what we've done. I feel like it just we tweak it a little bit every year, and it just is mm, even more magical. Um, but uh, so we, we sit around fire pits together. We have activities for the kids next door. We had someone that volunteered to bring Santa. So he's going to arrive in the downstairs. If that's not a thing, like, why am I even talking about that? Move on. Okay. Um, there's photo booth opportunities. Um, just a lot of merrymaking. That's what we're going to be doing. Some merrymaking with all the people that we love. And so I hope that you will bring your people that you love as well. And we can sit around fires with them. And then a little bit different thing that we're going to do is we are going to move indoors for our singing portion of the night. Um, and at the end of our service today, we're going to clear all the chairs out of here. And I'm going to ask you to help us stack those and put them on the wall again. Um, because if our numbers are similar to what they have been for outdoor Christmas, we wouldn't all be able to sit here in chairs. And so we'll just gather together and crunch together um, to sing. And I'm really excited about that. Um, some time to just kind of lean into God and who he is and remember. Um, so there will not be church on Christmas morning. We'd love for you to be with your families. And then again, on January 1st, we won't gather together with the ideas that are... Um, that's our, op what's happening? Mm. Just keep going. Okay, okay, I hear you. I'm going to try. January 1st is our, your chance to meet in homes together, to hang out with people, invest in people. Is your mic on in the back? This is about how our morning went, guys, from the moment. Your wedding. <laughs> okay, okay, I got this. What's next? Cedar Way Envision House Supply Drive. You maybe noticed that on your way in the doors that we're collecting things right here and over here. There are still, still quite a few things on that list that we need. Um, there were a lot of extras this month. Um, to help with Vision House and go to the Amazon wish list if you didn't have the opportunity to do that. 
And you can still do that by texting the word Amazon to the Brickview number. But if you can help in any way with the diapers and the produce that we need, the feminine supplies, um, just there is a big list on that. And if you text the word helping to the Brookview number, you will automatically get a link to that list. Um, and we go there this coming Tuesday. And so any donations, we would just be so grateful for. And you can leave them out here on the sidewalk. Um, ramp area. We have little bins that you can put those inside of and snap those down. Um, and I just want to thank you in advance for all that you're doing to love these families really well in ways that we don't get the credit for necessarily and we don't want it. We just want to be Jesus in the hands and the feet of him and maybe someday we'll have the opportunity to say to certain people why we get to. We never know when that might come up. So really, really cool stuff. Um, yeah, that Amazon gift wish list, and they are hoping that those would be in their office by Tuesday this week. And so if you haven't had a chance to purchase something and you really want to, today is your day and your moment. And then we have our gift card drive going on. There is a white box. It had some green bows. A few of them fell off. Am I right, Eloise? Yeah. Um, a white box on that welcome cabinet as you walk in the door. And we're collecting gift cards to help with grocery supplies as well as items that Vision House might need um, when there are gaps, when there are drives that they were anticipating that didn't go that well and they just need a little extra push. Um, we have that box available in the lobby through the middle of January, and we just kind of collect those. Maybe you get a gift card from your employer or that white elephant party, and you just feel like, you know, I'd like to give that instead of use it. Um, that, that's an opportunity for you in the lobby. Life groups. We are on a quarter system for life groups, and if you were not in one in the fall quarter, and you'd like to join one, it's a really good time. This is an on-ramp opening moment for you to um, get involved, get connected with other people that go to Brookview to talk about how to follow the way of Jesus, to live life together. We call them life groups not because you're in it for the rest of your life, but because you're going to do life together with those people. And um, it is just a beautiful thing. And, um, you know, we can't really well do life together right here. If you look around the room like, hey, let's all hang out. Um, we don't have space for that in our living room. But in living rooms, there are smaller groups of people and you can be known a little bit more and walk through life with people. So we have online groups, we have in-person groups. Um, and if you're interested in one of those, please, please reach out to us on your online communication card and we'll give you all the details and get you going to be ready in January when those start up again. If you were in a life group in the fall, you don't need to re-sign up. You are already in that group, and they're excited to have you back. So, I told you about stacking the chairs, right? Okay, so I made a note in my at the end of church to remind people to stack chairs. But for whatever reason, our technology is not working this morning, and it's just erasing things on us. So if I forget, yell at me at the end of church this morning. I mean, after I pray, if that would be all right, if you could wait. But yeah, just be like, stack chairs or just start stacking them. If you could help me out, that would be amazing because um, 
I brought my A game, but it's been hard to sustain. Okay, anyway, yeah, let me pray again. <laughs> Get out of here. Jason's like, yes, for the love. Oh, you weren't saying that, were you? Okay. God, thank you for the gift of this place, for the gift of these people that are friends and even more than friends, their family. Thank you for the way that you have loved me through them. God, for the way that we get to come alongside of each other to serve and to, um, to bring your garden city to the world around us. We have been able to do beautiful things that I would never be able to do on my own. And so God, thank you for the gift of community. And as Jason comes this morning, God, I pray that your spirit would rush through this room, that you would remind us of who we are in you. God, that you would um, call us to something deeper, because that's where we'll find um, the better life. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I just want to reiterate, in case you have not been paying attention the 10 times that we've talked about this, that we will not have church on Christmas morning, um, and we will not have it on New Year's morning. And there's really two reasons why, uh, volunteers and opportunity. So since COVID, we've had to rebuild like every ministry, like everything. And, and you guys have stepped up like in huge ways, just big time, children's ministry, worship, sound, video, media, all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. And so we want to give our volunteers a bit of a rest. But the second reason for us is it's opportunity. For many of you, Christmas Day and New Year's Day are real opportunities. They are great days to spend time with friends and with, with family. And, and some of those people, they know Jesus Many of them do not. And so we just want to really encourage you that while we won't be coming to church, let's go be the church wherever we go. Yes? Yes. So as you spend time with your people, whoever your people happen to be, be salt and be light in those places. Let's bring the kingdom. So rest and opportunity are really what those two mornings not doing church are all about. Um, let's take advantage of it. Okay, shifting gears. Um, many of you know that I follow a Bible reading plan called the Moravian reading plan, and many of you guys do as well. Um, and it has been really, really cool for me and really good for me over the last seven years or so. It's a two-year plan uh, to read through the entire Bible. Uh, there's like a New Testament reading, an Old Testament reading, and then there's always a reading from Psalms. But I rarely do the daily reading on Sundays. Um, the Sunday passages don't follow the normal sequence. They just kind of give you some random passages. And because, I don't know if you realize this, I have a lot going on on Sunday morning. <laughs> so I don't usually read. I, I have plenty of thoughts about God on Sunday morning without it. 
Um, but a couple of weeks ago, I, I had some extra time on Sunday morning. I was up kind of early. I had some space. And so before church, I, I read and I soaked. And you guys, I came across a passage that just gave me chills. In fact, I was, I was driving to church, and um, I didn't go the normal way. I missed kind of a sneaky little shortcut way that I normally take. And so uh, Jen looked at me. She's like, what the heck? Are you thinking about something else? And so I admitted, yeah, I am sorry. She's like, well, what are you thinking about? And so I said, I see it too. She's like, well, that's spiritual. And so she's like, like what? Like, and so I told her I read it in the morning. She's like, tell me about it. And so I explained the gist of the passage to her and why I found it beautiful. And um, in this series, we've been thinking about God's dream for our world and the role that he's giving to us. He's handing to us to move it forward. And Isaiah 2 is a vision that God gives Isaiah about where everything is heading. And this vision came, this prophecy came 700 years before Jesus. And the Jewish people longed and longed for it. And in the midst of all of the division that we've seen through COVID and politics and injustice, just we've seen friends losing friends and families dividing. And then for us, really personal with the war in Ukraine, because we have people that we know and love in Ukraine. And then there was the school shootings and all of that. And I just kind of found myself in this, this spot of going, what, what is going on in the world, God? It's just so sad. Um, and so when I read Isaiah 2, I was like, oh, yeah. This is what God is doing. He promises that he's up to something. So I want to read for you what gave me chills. Just five verses. Isaiah 2, starting with verse 1. says, This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let me, let me just quickly walk through this picture for you. It says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. This is saying that one day soon, and this is already happening, but it will happen more. People from all nations will stream to God. And they will see his goodness and they will see his compassion and his beauty and his power. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So people will be eager to, to learn the way of God and live differently. 
Like they will humble themselves and learn compassion and generosity and grace. And God will be active in healing conflicts of all kinds everywhere on earth, between individual people, between family members, between brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors, as well as nations. It says, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares. Let me try to envision this. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Disputes between people and nations will be healed everywhere. And the picture is that nations will then take their weapons of war and turn them into farming tools. They will take the resources, all the resources that they pour into the military machine and repurpose them to cultivate human flourishing all over the earth. It, you guys, it will be a world like nothing we have ever seen. I'm telling you, I read that that morning, and with all that's going on in the world, it was just like chills. Peace is coming. In Hebrew, peace is the word what? Shalom. It's an all-encompassing idea. And now, it includes the absence of conflict or war, but it is, it is so much more. It's justice, like complete justice. It's wholeness. It is, it is complete well-being. It is, it is, it is flourishing. And, and Jewish people, if you, if you know Jewish people, they will still greet one another these days saying shalom, which is a lot cooler than just saying what's up. <laughs> it's it's kind of like a, a one-word prayer that's basically saying, may God grant you complete wholeness. So shalom is, is the place where all relationships with self, with others, with God, with creation are well-ordered and defined by harmony and dignity and love and grace and honor for all. I think that on some level, we all long for shalom. And the people of Israel cried out to God for it, and God promised its coming. He promised that it would come through a man, through a king that was like no other king. And in Isaiah 9, we, that we read more. Uh, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of His government and peace, Shalom, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So in this king, God is saying, I'm going to establish a completely different kind of kingdom, a new government, a new way of life that is going to bring wholeness for all. And 700 years after this promise came a, a no-name rabbi from Nazareth. And he taught people a new way to be human. He taught them the way to shalom. He taught about truth and justice, which are tied deeply to love and forgiveness. Without love expressed in forgiveness, there cannot be shalom. Without the forgiveness of God, we will never know peace. But shalom will also require that we learn to forgive one another. And so today, as we think about, as we think about our longing for shalom, as we think about what God is ultimately doing in our world, I just want to think really like deeply about how important forgiveness was to Jesus. 
If you just think about how often this theme came up in his teaching. And I want to begin in Matthew 18, verse 21. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Okay, a little bit of backstory. In the first century, a common rabbinic teaching was that you are to forgive your brother or sister, and notice that language, for Jewish people it meant a fellow Jew, up to seven times. Like, so there's a limit. Okay, so I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, but it seems as though Peter has been following Rabbi Jesus around for quite some time, and he's been watching, and he's beginning to suspect that Jesus does not uphold the seven times of forgiving somebody limit. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, some translations and manuscripts say 70 times seven. So, quick math. Kate, what does that equal? No. (laughs) Don't worry, she's she's just teaching eighth graders math. No! No! 70 times 7. 490. Thank you. 490. God bless you, my daughter. <laughs> Here's what's not happening with this. Okay, if, if, if Jesus said 70 times 7, he's not saying, so go out and, and, and open up an Excel spreadsheet, and when they get to 490... You're off the hook. The idea here is this is a very large amount. He's, he's saying there's no limit. Jesus' end goal for all of his apprentices, not just for Peter, but for you and me, is to grow and mature into the kind of people who are forgiving by nature without limit. Now, when I read this, and maybe when you read this, my inner lawyer starts to object. Right? It's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. But Jesus... You don't know my pain. You don't know my scenario. You don't know what happened. You don't know what went down. Jesus, you don't understand. But because he's the most brilliant teacher to ever live, Jesus does what good, teacher, what good teachers do. He anticipates our objection, and he sees it coming a mile away, and so he just launches right into a story. Verse 23. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Uh, Try to envision that. Can you imagine owing somebody 10,000 bags of gold in the first century? Okay, the idea is this is a massive amount. This was a ridiculous sum, like somewhere in the range in our modern day of maybe something like a trillion dollars. Okay, this man had no chance of ever paying back a sum that large, ever. Since he was not able to pay, Jesus continues, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, this is how debts were handled in the ancient world. What a brutal world. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged and I will pay back everything. 
Now, this gets lost in translation and because we're in a different culture and all this. You guys, this is Jesus being funny. It is? It is. This man could never possibly pay back a trillion dollars. And so his audience would be listening to the story and they're like, oh, Jesus, that's hilarious. Okay, this is an absurd request. But even so, here's what he says. Jesus says, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Jesus continues, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, a very manageable amount. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Same language, except this is an amount that could reasonably be paid back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And Jesus' disciples would be going, well, of course, that makes sense. But listen to the final stinging line of this teaching. Verse 35, Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Okay, be honest. What is your emotional response to that? For me, it's a bit unsettling. And it doesn't feel to me like God's heart. And so it raises all kinds of objections. Like, wait, what? God, I thought your love and your grace to me were a free gift. They weren't dependent upon me doing everything right. Like forgiving everybody that wrongs me requires a maturity level that's far beyond what I'm even capable of doing. I mean, that will take a, a level of apprenticeship to Jesus that I have yet to reach. So, so what does this mean? Does it mean that in the meantime, you and I aren't okay? Does it mean that I, I'm not forgiven? Does it mean that my salvation is in question? What, what in the world are you saying, Jesus? I mean, there is no doubt the ultimate point Jesus is making here, which is, if you've, been a for, if you've been forgiven a debt so big that you could never pay it, shouldn't you be eager to extend forgiveness to those around you? But the way Jesus says it, it sounds a lot stronger than that, right? I, I, I like the way John MacArthur explains this. And if you know me at all, and you happen to know John MacArthur and his teaching and his writings you know that he and I do not jive on very much. <laughs> I see most things very differently from him. Um, but I agree with him on this one, okay? And so he writes this. He says, Jesus is not speaking here of the forgiveness that brings salvation, saying that God only forgives those who are forgiving. That would be works-based righteousness. He's saying those who are saved, transformed, and given a new nature in Christ and have the indwelling spirit generally will manifest that changed life by having a forgiving attitude. 
Christians are to be marked as forgiving people because they have been forgiven as no others on earth. When they are not forgiving, they are living in op opposition to their new nature in Christ. If the massive forgiveness of God toward us doesn't free us to become more gracious ourselves, then I think we should begin to question if we really know God's love and his grace at all. We are to learn to forgive as we have been forgiven. And, and this, this is key. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he has not already done himself. So let's, let's look at that famous passage in, in Luke 23 for a second. Just a different scene. Luke 23, this is, this is the crucifixion scene. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the, with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Now, is Jesus a criminal? No, Jesus is an innocent victim. And so Jesus said, Father, strike them down because they know exactly what they're doing. Now, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So feel the full weight and the gravity of this scene and this story. Here's Jesus. He's dying on the cross. He's an innocent victim carrying the full weight of injustice on his shoulders for the, in, for the entire world, for every human being to ever live, including you and me. And at his feet are men who are not only not sorry for killing him, they're making his torture and his death a fun little game. And the last words out of his mouth toward them are, Father, forgive them because they have no clue what they are really doing. The idea here from Lucas, listen, if, and this is Lucas painting a picture for you and me. Listen, if Jesus is willing to forgive the very men who were killing him, how much more willing is he for, to, to forgive you and me? I don't know if you ever wrestle with this sense of, could God really forgive me? This is Luke's definitive statement that, yes, even you, God will forgive you. So, do you ever wonder what, what if Jesus really loves you? Like, this is, this, is, this is Luke's emphatic answer to that. He's saying this is what Jesus is like, and by default, this is what, what the Father is like. So when you and I are commanded by Jesus to follow his example to forgive, it's rooted in the very essence of Jesus. Like this is the king. This is the kingdom. This is, this is how we participate. This idea runs all through the New Testament. Like, you guys, it's everywhere. Um, one more example, just Ephesians 4, real quick. Paul writes, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And we're like, okay, Paul, how would I grieve the Holy Spirit? And he says, get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, the interesting thing is, I don't know really anybody who doesn't agree that what Paul is saying here is generally good. But here's what I've observed about forgiveness in like real life. We like it a lot more as a general concept, right, concept than a specific practice. 
We, we all agree that forgiveness is generally good for humanity, but when it comes time to actually forgive something, an actual hurt from an actual person in our actual life, we are a whole lot less excited about the idea. And there's a lot of reasons for this, many reasons. I mean, for one thing, there's a part of us that likes to kind of nurse our grudges. When people hurt us, our grudges, they give us a sense of power. It's like we have something on them. We hold something over them. Grudges make us feel like we're good and they're bad. Our, our grudges give us a sense of superiority, right? I mean, that's one thing that's going on. And then, of course, when the hurt runs really, really deep, it's just flat out hard, right? It's hard. But I think that, and there's a lot of other reasons, but I, I think there's something else sometimes that's going on. I think sometimes we make forgiveness into something that it isn't. And we make it feel so big that it, it feels impossible. I mean, sometimes our, our, our problem is simply confusion over what forgiveness actually is. We, we feel like God is asking us to do something that he's not asking us to do. So it can be really helpful to clarify what forgiveness is and what it's not. And so let me just name a few things forgiveness is not. Okay, forgiveness, number one, is not forgetting. You've heard the saying, right? Forgive and forget. And so we feel like, then, that we haven't forgiven unless we also have simultaneously been able to forget. But if you've ever been deeply wounded, you know you can't just forget. And, and this does not make you an unforgiving person. It makes you human. Right? Like, we, we aren't computers. We can't just delete files, right? So if we equate forgiving with forgetting, we can feel stuck because if we're unable to forget, we think we cannot forgive. But forgiveness is not the same thing as forgetting. Also, forgiveness is not excusing. I mean, there are times when we can legitimately excuse somebody's bad behavior, right? We, we excuse expectant dads for driving recklessly because they're driving a woman in labor to a hospital. Right? And, and of course, if we can excuse people for whatever, if we can find some reason why this bad thing isn't really a bad thing, we should do that. I mean, far too often, we're way too quick to judge. But forgiveness is not the same thing as excusing. Forgiveness is required when there's just no good rationale to explain away why somebody did what they did. If an action is excusable, it doesn't need to be forgiven. Third, forgiveness is not allowing a toxic person back into your life. So when moving forward with people that have caused us significant pain, we have to be wise about how and when and if we allow them back into our life. People sometimes think that forgiving means that, that we reunite with someone no matter what. That to forgive, a wife, a wife must move back in with the man who beats her. Or a businessman must take back a dishonest partner. But you can forgive and still maintain very healthy, very reasonable boundaries. If you have a friend that goes around telling everybody your secrets, you can truly forgive her without continuing to share your secrets with her. Yes? You can forgive your ex for cheating on you, but you don't have to start dating again. So if forgiveness is not forgetting or excusing or allowing a toxic person back into your life, what is forgiveness? When Jesus says you, you must forgive one another from your heart, what exactly does that entail? Well, first, forgiveness is letting go of our right to hurt back. 
When I forgive you, I give up the right to hurt you back. I refrain from the instinctive response of retaliation. Watch two little kids playing in a room, and one of them accidentally smacks the other one. What happens? Uh, a retaliatory smack, only it's probably increased, and pretty soon they're throwing blows, and it's horrible. <laughs> Forgiveness begins when we, we give up the quest to get even. And, and this is hard because getting even is the nat natural fixation of the wounded soul. Human nature, the flesh, will always want to return pain for pain. But, the returning, but returning pain for pain, just, it just fills the world with more pain. And the biggest problem with getting even is that no, no two people weigh pain on the same exact scale. Like, when are, we, when are we even? Will the Palestinians ever get even with the Israelis? Will, will the Bloods ever get even with the Crips on the street of L, streets of L.A.? No, never. They, they could go on killing each other until they're all dead, but they will never feel like they've gotten even. Forgiving begins when we resolve to stop trying to get even. Then, of course, like letting go of vengeance doesn't mean letting go of justice, right? Justice must still be honored. Justice is about accountability. So a, a rapist may be forgiven by his victim, but he still needs to pay his debt to society. If someone commits a criminal act against you, you can forgive while they simultaneously pay their legal debt. Forgiveness is not incompatible with the legal process, process, which is about justice. Justice is about accountability. It's about fairness for society, and it's necessary. Forgiveness is about letting go of vengeance, which is insatiable. Forgiveness is letting go of returning pain for pain. Okay, next, next level of it. Forgiveness is wishing the other person well. So once we let go of the right to hurt back or cause pain, the next stage involves a new way of seeing and feeling. And the one thing that happens when we get hurt deeply is that we look, when we look at the one who's hurt us, we, we stop seeing a person anymore. Right? We only see the hurt. When someone wounds us, we, we forget to see him or her as a human being, just as we are, remembering that we too are a mixed bag. That like us, that person is a mixture of wonder and waywardness, beauty and sin. When we forgive, we don't ignore the hurts, but we begin seeing beyond them. We stop seeing a monster, and we start seeing a person. And we begin desiring good things for that person. And so the more advanced stage of forgiveness is, is beginning to actually see them differently. But I want to I say something about this. If we're, if we're wishing them good things, it's important that we consider, well, what kind of good things? What, what does it really mean to wish somebody well? Does it mean that we wish the arrogant person more success so they get more arrogant? Or that we wish the mean person suffers no relational consequences for their meanness? That they never overcome their meanness and learn to grow in their compassion? If we think of wishing them well as, as wishing for these kinds of things, there's something in us that goes, I can't, Right? You know why you can't? Because you shouldn't. But, but if wishing them well is wishing them shalom, a comprehensive inward and outward transformation, like discovering God's best and beginning to live into that, then that's a very different picture. 
and they may need a wake-up call to get there. There may need to be consequences for their action for them to get there, and you can wish that for them because that is their greater good. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I have, you guys, I have seen people change in ways that are just extraordinary, and many of you have. You've seen someone that, that, that you know, they become beautiful. Uh, I have seen some, some really hardened people softened by God. Um, when I was in college, I, I played baseball for a coach that scared me to death. Um, he was crass, and he was mean, and he was just generally scary. His wife, on the other hand, was a sweet, meek little Christ-following woman. And, his, and Pat, her name, Pat was a big part of my journey in coming to Jesus. But her husband, Bob, he was a tough dude. And he could be mean. Now, Bob, in all fairness, Bob did have some good qualities. Like, he could be nice in spurts. Um, he was loyal. He had integrity. And he could be very generous at times. But often, Bob was just grumpy, bitter, angry, cold, and mean. And more than anything, Pat wanted a husband that would know Jesus with her. But Bob made, made it very clear to her again and again and again that he wanted nothing to do with church or Jesus or any of that part of her life. If that was something that Pat was intent on doing, it was something she would have to do on her own. And that went on, it went on that way for year after year. And then, you guys, something crazy happened. I don't even know what it was, but I heard that years later, somehow Bob came to Jesus and everything changed. Now, I don't know how or why, but he started going to church with his wife. And it wasn't just like he attended, but his heart wasn't in it, you know. I heard that he had like a radical heart change. So much so that, that serving alongside his wife in their church together became his greatest joy in life. And he would, he would, they went to a vineyard, very charismatic church, and he would stand beside her worshiping with arms raised and just singing his heart out. Which, I, when I envision Bob, I'm like, I cannot even envision that. But people tell me this, more than any of that, there was just a simple sweetness to him. Like the hard edge was gone. The meanness just evaporated. He, he let go of bitterness and somehow he found joy. And he treated people like Jesus would and he discovered community. And he died a man who had learned to love Jesus and others. He found love, friendship, community, and meaning for his life. Now, in wishing my former coach well, who I did, I had some bitterness toward, what, what more could I have possibly wished? And to me, this is way more important than wishing that the people that have hurt us uh, find financial prosperity or fame or success or even physical health. Those aren't bad things, but we can wish something deeper. Several years ago, I, I read a book called uh, Letters from a Skeptic, and it is, um, it's amazing. It's, it's real letters written back and forth between a pastor who was uh, like, he went to like, uh, where did he go? Princeton. Pretty sharp dude. Uh, pastor and his dad. His dad was not a Christian, and it, it, was, it was just opposed to all of it. But they agreed to have this correspondence of letters over many years. And so the dad raises his, his objections to Christianity. And the son addresses them graciously and thoughtfully. 
And so after a long correspondence that lasted in real life, lasted several years, the dad became a follower of Jesus at 73 years old. And the letters that they wrote back and forth were eventually published. And so you can, you can read them. Again, it's called Letters from a Skeptic. At the, at the end, the son then included an epilogue about his father. And I just want to read a chunk of this to you because I think when we think about what does shalom look like, you guys, this is a picture of shalom. So son writes about his dad. He says, while I was overwhelmed with joy by my father's decision to accept Christ, I wasn't very optimistic about how much transformation would take place in his post-conversion life. At 73 years old, my father was much older than most people who come to Christ, plus he had always been very set in his ways. My pessimism couldn't have been more misplaced. Indeed, it's difficult to exaggerate the profundity of the Holy Spirit's transformation of my father during the last 11 years of his life. One dramatic change was in my father's emotional tenderness. The pre-Christian Ed Boyd rarely expressed his emotions, certainly not in public. But the Christian Ed Boyd became a man who wore his heart on his sleeve. My father literally wept for joy every time he heard of a person coming to Christ through our correspondence. And over the course of 11 years, he heard this hundreds of times. My father's faith was marked by another dramatic change. From our correspondence, it was clear faith didn't come easily for Ed. Though he became thoroughly convinced of the truth of the gospel, I anticipated continually helping this incurable rationalist remain stable in the faith. This was not the case. Almost immediately after his conversion, my father seemed to rest in a profound and beautiful childlike faith. Once, while visiting my father in a hospital after a third stroke left him nearly paralyzed, I told him I, I wanted to commission him for the most important task I could ever give someone. Since he was clearly going to have a lot of time on his hands as he recovered, I asked him to be my personal full-time prayer warrior. I explained that throughout each and every day, he'd, he'd need to pray for me, my family, and my ministry. To my surprise, Dad hesitated for a moment with a concerned look on his face. Then in his very stroke-impaired speech, he asked me, do prayers that I think work as well as prayers that I vocalize? It's a lot of work for me to say much these days. I got choked up at the recognition that this once arrogant intellectual giant was expressing such simple questions about God. I assured him that God knew his thoughts without his saying them out loud. He gave me a crooked smile as he muttered, okay then boy, I'm your guy. The most profound change in dad's post-conversion life was his general disposition. The pre-Christian Ed Boyd was usually contentious and ill-tempered. More often than not, he was angry about something and very vocal about it. Soon, after his heart surrendered to Christ, Ed Boyd became a profound, acquired a profound peace, a pervasive sweetness, and most remarkably, an amazing sense of gratitude I never saw prior to his conversion. What made his transformation more remarkable was that soon after he committed his life to Christ, my father was given more reasons to complain than he had ever dreamed. 
One year after his conversion, my father suffered the first of several debilitating strokes. Over the years, he lost most of his physical abilities and verbal skills. Eventually, his once fiercely, this, this once fiercely independent man was unable to care for himself and was confined to a wheelchair. By the age of 80, he was almost completely blind and deaf. The pre-Christian Ed Boyd would have been positively miserable, and yet the Christian Ed Boyd rarely complained. While it sounds odd, the worse things got for my father, the more grateful he became. Before his final stroke left him in a coma, I was with my father when he began to weep for no apparent reason. Shouting into his hearing aid, I requested an explanation for his tears. His response flurred me. Sitting in his wheelchair, wearing diapers, unable to do anything but the most elementary task for himself, nearly totally blind and deaf, this once malcontented man said in his stroke-impaired speech, because I feel so blessed by God just to be here. I embraced him tightly for a long moment as we both wept. As a witness to the unfathomable, unfathomable love and power of God, this man was definitely not the same father I grew up with. When we wish people well, what is it that we're wishing for? Well, we can wish them health and wealth and success. But you guys, more than any of that, we can wish them shalom. And when I think of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, I, it feels to me like he's saying something like this. Like he's saying, Father, don't define them by this, by this moment of their lives. Even these men who are behaving absolutely wickedly right now, with the Holy Spirit in their life, they can become something new and beautiful. Even these men can become something new and beautiful. So, Father, don't give up on them. When Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, this is the kind of thing that I envision. And it just that leads me to one final, just to one final thing. Forgiveness is the only way to live truly free. We, we are always to pursue forgiving people who have hurt us, even when the offenders don't ask for it or deserve it. Because God wants us to be free. God wants us to forgive because it frees us. He commands it because the only other way is to remain a prisoner of the hurt. God commands forgiving because to refuse to forgive means that I allow the one that hurt me to keep me in chains, in a prison of resentments, resentment and, and bitterness and cynicism. You guys, no human beings are more miserable than the unforgiving. In, in a best-case scenario, forgiveness leads to the healing of a broken relationship, like it's the catalyst to, to healing and restoration. It leads to renewal of community. But the reality is that is a dance that requires the participation of two willing partners. In many cases, our forgiveness won't result in reconciliation. And God, God is saying, and Jesus is saying, it's still worth it. Uh, Anne Lamott wrote, Anne Lamott's a funny lady, and uh, she wrote, 
I went around saying for a long time that I'm not one of the Christians who is heavily into forgiveness. That I'm one of the other kind. But even though it was funny and actually true, it started to be too painful to stay this way. In fact, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. For forgiveness is the only way to live truly free. Right? Like, Don't forgive and your heart, your, your, your anger will become your burden. Don't forgive and, and bit by bit, joy will just be choked out of you. Don't forgive and, and you're, you become less able to trust in the future. Don't forgive and the little grudge that you nurse will begin to grow and in time it will become a monster and it'll kill you. Every day we have to choose and our choices form us. Vengeance or mercy, hatred or grace, prison or freedom. And because he loves us, Jesus is pleading, choose wisely. Okay, so on your seat this morning is there's a little card and a pen. And as, as we worship this morning, I just invite you to write a name on it. The name of someone that has hurt you in some way. Somebody that, that you need to forgive. It could be somebody from your everyday life right now. Could be your spouse or your child or your parent or your roommate, a coworker, friend, boss, whatever. Or it could be somebody from your past that isn't even in your life anymore. Someone that has hurt you or caused you pain that you've been carrying for quite quite some time. But whoever whoever that person is, write, just write down that name. And as we work through the closing worship set, I, I want to invite you to ask God to help you forgive that person. So you can think about what, what's happened and just pray something like this. Father, help me, help me let go of my bitterness. Help me let go of any right that I feel to hurt them back. Help me to begin wishing them well, to want your very best for them. Shalom for them. Father, help me find freedom from my anger and, and bitterness toward this person. Father, help me forgive the way you've forgiven me. And for some of you, I mean, some of you, you have been hurt in ways that I can't even imagine. And you, you know you, you really don't have it in you to forgive. You, you need God for this. This needs to be miraculous. This needs to be a Holy Spirit thing. And so I want to encourage you to just give that person to God. And so at any point during this closing worship set, you can just come up to the cross here and lay your card in, at, at the foot of the cross in the bucket that's there. And it's just sort of a symbolic act, a way of saying, God, I, I want to forgive and let this go, so help me. I'm giving this person to you. Fill my heart with your spirit and help me forgive. And this morning, we're going to take communion together. We're going to remember the grace of God given to us through Jesus. The juice represents his, his blood shed for us. The bread represents his body broken for us. And so you can come and you can kneel here up front, maybe spend some time in prayer. Or you can take your juice and bread back to your seat. But we have juice and bread in the back also. They're including a, a gluten-free option back there. But I also invite you to come and lay your card or your person at the cross. And maybe, maybe just as a part of you coming and taking communion, as you, as you think about grace, think deeply about the grace that Jesus is giving to you. Think deeply about his forgiveness, but also think about the person that you need to forgive. And ask God to help you to help you find freedom. So in closing, um, I want to read Isaiah 2 over you. 
one more time. And uh, I want to invite the worship team to, to come on back up. But would you, would you bow your head, close your eyes, and hold your hands, maybe palms up, and just let these words and this vision wash over you. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will, dis- and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord.